I'm Inez Stepman. I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Will Chamberlain. And I'm Amber Duke. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we have, as usual, um, a lineup of disparate topics for you today, all of them important. We're going to start by talking about the potential Israel-Hamas ceasefire. Will is going to cover that for us. Um, I'm going to talk more about the response at home with the Hillcrest High School incident um, here at home in Queens. And then um, we're going to move to Ben, who's going to talk about media matters and Elon Musk uh, and the potential lawsuit there. And then finally, Amber is going to round us out uh, with Ireland's new hate speech bill uh, with with some seriously disturbing uh, implications there. Um, with that, I'll, I'll, I'll hand it over to Will to kick us off. Thank you, Inez. Um, so, yes, if you've been paying attention to the news at all, there has been a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas for about the last five days, I want to say. Today is day five of the ceasefire. It was originally scheduled to be about four days long with 13 Israelis released each day in exchange for something like 39 Palestinians, a three to one ratio, which which is it's pretty dramatic. It's substantially better than the the thousand to one ratio that Hamas managed to achieve um, back when Gilad Shalit uh, was taken captive. Um, but it, so it's substantially better than that, um, probably because of the immense pressure that the Israeli military has been able to put on Hamas in the northern Gaza Strip. Um, and the ceasefire apparently is going to continue as long as Hamas is willing to produce 10 live Israeli hostages each day. That also just kind of put a finite time limit on how long the, the ceasefire could last because there's only 200 plus hostages in, in Gaza that, that were even possible for, for Hamas to release. And some of them aren't even in their control um, as we're finding out. I mean, there's a lot of different aspects we can talk about. The first is this very bizarre circumstance that Israel finds itself in, um, where you have you know a lot of people out there trying to talk about how humane Hamas has been to some of the hostages and how terrible Israel's been, and you know, it's just I, I tweeted out how Israel is just in these bizarre circumstance where they had you know effectively the equivalent in America would be something like a Mexican drug cartel raiding uh, El Paso, kidnapping toddlers, and then demanding that we release convicted drug cartel operatives in exchange for the toddlers um, and three for one, not just one for one, but three for one. Um, it, it's actually, in some sense, I don't think America would agree to a ceasefire like this, even if it's you know substantially better than the one that Israel agreed to 10 years ago, but there's definitely a contingent within Israel that is very, you know, you know, and understandably so prioritizes getting the hostages home above prevailing in the military conflict. Um, and I think, uh, Yoram Hazoni's son, H.A. Hazoni, had a very good thread sort of explaining the underlying logic of this that you can read on his feed. Uh, he he explained that even though this was militarily unwise and many in Israel understood that it was militarily unwise, it part of the, the tribes of Israel, as he put it, a big chunk of the Israeli public very much prioritized getting the hostages back and went to war to get the hostages back. And to keep those people in the tent to keep Israeli society unified, they needed to, you know, they needed to take a reasonable, reasonable deal if it was on offer. Um, so I think that's ultimately what the Israelis decided to do. I suspect also that given the way that the war has gone over the past three to four weeks, the Israeli military basically decided that they could tolerate a, an operational pause without suffering any major, you know, uh, weaknesses in their military position. Um, 
And I think, you know, I think ultimately, I don't know how much longer this can go on. I suspect it'll go on for a few more days as, as Hamas is able to release all the remaining, you know, some of the, the less valuable hostages. But eventually there will be some line drawn. I saw some reporting out there that Hamas was trying to negotiate more forcefully for to exchange people who are members of the IDF, um, like actual military captives that they wanted far more in return in terms of uh, Palestinian prisoners to be released. Um there's also there's a few other dynamics that you know are at play. Uh, there's the fact that there was this message. There's this video that went around. I mean, immediately, uh, almost as the ceasefire began, you had lynchings starting happening, and not in Gaza, but in the West Bank by Hamas. You had uh, the lynching of two collaborators that went all over social media, and you know people out there filming it like they were at a Taylor Swift concert on their smartphones. Um, kind of really clarifies that you know maybe this these aren't the good guys. They're still you know we're we're well past lynchings at this point. You would think. And I think, I, I guess the final thing to take away here is you, you know that there's going to be continued pressure on Israel to launch a permanent ceasefire. And it seems like what I'm reading on Hamas, from Hamas is that they are trying to get a deal where they get a permanent end to the conflict in exchange for the release of all the hostages. I sincerely hope that nobody, you know, I don't think Israel will go for that. I hope they don't go for it. And I hope the United States doesn't try and pressure them into it because you know, even if all the hostages are returned, that shouldn't, that's not the end of the war. You still started this with a massacre that killed 1400 civilians for no good reason. And it is still not a durable end to the conflict in a world where the organization that did that is just allowed to, you know, kind of go back to the status quo ante um, and continue to rebuild. And so I hope that this ceasefire, I mean, I'm very happy for all the hostages that have been released and very happy for their families. And um, am not, you know, certainly the more hostages are, that are released, the better. Um, but I hope that Israel is able to recommence its military campaign and, and bring an end to Hamas sooner rather than later. But I'm interested to hear what you guys have to think. Um, just, just a couple of thoughts. One, it's really impossible to judge without knowing more about the military dynamics that you mentioned, Will. Like, I don't know what they're giving up operationally. Uh, one hopes that they know what they're they're giving up operationally, which is not as far from certain, uh, you know, either that they know exactly what they're giving up operationally, um, you know. But but balancing these two goals that unfortunately are somewhat, if if not in conflict with each other, at least in tension, just destruction of Hamas and their capabilities to carry out an October seventh every month, like they have promised publicly on TV, um, and getting the hostages back in one piece. Um, one wishes that these two goals were not in conflict, of course, um, but they are. Um, and and so balancing those things, I think, requires way more knowledge that's just not not public. So I'm, I'm reluctant to sort of comment on that balance. Um, that being said, I, I think Will is right to say that maintaining support, especially outside of Israel in places like the United States and Western Europe uh, for the war will be really critical after the exchanges, if they are completed, after those exchanges are completed, I would not assume, um, especially domestically in Israel, that the the um, public uh, will not be more, uh, even more worked up um, in terms of pursuing this just war after we learn more about what has happened to these people um, for, for these past weeks uh, in Gaza. Um, I just want to make one note, though, about the media coverage uh, of these exchanges, I think nicely summarized by a, a beautiful cacophony of both idiocy and and incredible sort of um, moral bias, right? Uh, in in the Sky News interview, wherein the, the 
frankly, idiotic anchor points to some expert. And one it's very funny when she points to the expert say, saying this, because like even, even there she has to point to expertise. But um, essentially she accuses Israel of not placing equal value on the lives of uh, Palestinians versus Israelis because they were willing to give three prisoners um, convicted prisoners or prisoners waiting for trial uh, up for every Israeli hostage returned. Uh, it smacks of the three-fifths the idiot three-fifths argument where uh, you hear the left in this country argue that uh, the Constitution only valued slave lives at three-fifths that of um, of, of uh, white lives at that time. And of course, this was, in fact, if you valued slaves' lives at that time, you would want them counted as zero in representation. Um, Anyway, so that kind of moral idiocy was just really the capstone. But I just want to read a couple of the other headlines. Um, you know, in, in the AP, it said Palestinians rejoice over, quote, minors, comma, women, prisoners returned. Um, you see, again, this equivalence between people who are snatched from their beds in these kibbutzes um, and people who have been convicted many times of, of terrorism and murder uh, being exchanged. I think the, the comparison uh, to cartel members is a, a, a good one, Will. Um, Reuters, Hamas releases 13 more Israeli soldiers. Uh, referring to the captives that, that were released. I mean, the ages of these people alone would show you that they're not soldiers. They're either children or women and men in their, you know, 70s and 80s. Um, and then and then finally, the New York Times, of course, the inglorious uh, profile on the, quote, disfigured woman um, who was released. Of course, she was disfigured in her own car bombing attempt, um, uh, trying to take out uh, the lives of Israeli civilians. Um, anyway, so I think it's worth... Uh, Noting, and, and it goes to the, the point, too, about maintaining the support after any potential hostage exchanges are complete, uh, the media is going overboard and trying to morally equivocate between these two groups of people being exchanged. There was a moment a few days ago where Congressman Greg Pence was confronted at a restaurant by pro-Palestinian protesters and confronted is maybe not a strong enough word. He was harassed at a restaurant, which happens quite frequently to members of the political right, unfortunately. But they were, of course, demanding that he support a ceasefire. And he pointed out, well, there currently is a ceasefire and Hamas is, um, this is contingent on Hamas continuing to release hostages. And they said, well, no, you have to support a permanent ceasefire. And he just replied and said, that's by definition, not a ceasefire then, <laughs> right? Like that's the ending of the war. And so I think it just kind of spoke to the unrealistic and unjust expectations that the pro-Palestinian left has toward Israel. Um, and it becomes quite obvious their bias in terms of um, how they have these very unequal expectations in this war where Israel is defending itself in response to a terror attack um, in terms of what Israel is supposed to do in order to work toward peace versus what Hamas and Palestine is supposed to do. So I may have to reserve some of my commentary here for parting shots, but uh, I will say that I am dubious of this deal. Uh, obviously, setting aside the certainly pressure that Benjamin Yahoo was under both domestically, certainly from the left and perhaps to some extent from the right as well, and then from the Biden administration as well. It hasn't really been fully addressed yet to what extent the Biden administration forced this deal effectively on Benjamin Netanyahu and how this fits into what this administration perceives to be U.S. national interest. But I think that the fact that this so-called deal, which is not just three for one in terms of, uh, in some cases, convicted terrorists, uh, but is also effectively the resupply of Hamas in terms of fuel, 
and other aid going into Gaza, as well as, of course, the cessation in fighting when Hamas was getting pummeled. All of this serves to its interest, in addition to the fact that I think this has the real prospect of being 15 days to slow the spread, but for Hamas's survival. To what extent does the ceasefire continue extending, despite the fact, by the way, that there's ample evidence to suggest that Hamas has violated its terms, including before we came to record today, uh, attacking with remote detonated weapons uh, and members of the IDF? Uh, does this extend? Does international pressure grow? Um, what do the terms of an extension look like? And obviously, to what extent does it not only allow Hamas to resupply and regroup, but to change its positioning? for Hamas members who have fled to southern Gaza to uh, further hide among the population and prepare for potential staging of future attacks. So I think all of this is in question. And so for all the good, and it obviously is great that there are hostages, innocents who have returned to their homes, uh, in many cases under the most heartbreaking of circumstances, strategically and tactically, the goals of eradicating Hamas as well as releasing hostages here are at cross purposes based upon this method for returning the hostages as opposed to attacking and exfiltrating them. Um, with that, I guess I'll I'll hand it to myself as moderator's prerogative. Um, I, I want to talk about the Hill, uh, Hillcrest High School incident. This is in, in Queens in New York. Um, there, so there were uh, there was a teacher who went on her own private time to one of the pro-Israel protests um, in in the city and posted a picture of herself on her personal Facebook page holding a sign that said "I stand with Israel." Um, and there was a mass protest. Um, I use protest in the mostly peaceful sense because sinks were ripped off the walls, tiles were broken, so there were there was a, a fair amount of. of um, not non-peaceful protesting, uh, but students out into uh, the the corridors of the school, um, basically rampaging through the school, controlling the school. Um, the police were able to arrive on the scene. They actually took the teacher, uh, put her in a closet uh, to try to separate her from the mob of students. Um, and then, of course, this was all culminated by the students proudly posting their participation um, in in this mini riot uh, in the school on on TikTok and elsewhere um, to mostly cheers from their classmates. Um, so th this is a school, by the way, that is uh, towards the bottom. It's it's in the uh, the bottom forty of uh, well over um, five hundred schools in in New York City in terms of math and reading scores. So that should should give you a sense um, of, of what how the school is performing on its primary duty. Um, there, there have been uh, some. Initially, there were just some in in school suspensions under pressure. The school um, has has uh, said they're going to to increase the punishments, and that the police are now looking at, and they have arrested a couple of the students and may arrest more. Um, the bottom line here, uh, I think, is twofold. One, um, this this uh, sort of moral revolution um, within a generation and a half of Americans. Uh, cannot be underestimated and now can be deployed on any basis. I do not believe that a bunch of kids um, in Queens know, and as we know from some of the like sort of man on the street interviews that have been done, you know, they they don't know which rivers they're talking about when they chant from the river to the sea, right? They don't know which sea and they don't know which river. Um, they don't know much about this conflict at all. What we have is a a essentially a red guard uh, that can be mobilized uh, for basically any reason that gets ginned up. Um, 
whether that's abroad or domestically for any of, of the, the current thing protests uh, that can be deployed in that way. Uh, and that, that is the result of the education system, um, of course, egged on by foreign uh, adversaries on TikTok, et cetera. But, but it is fundamentally the result of decades of indoctrination, both in, K, you know, in universities, bleeding down into K-12. Um, and it has resulted in a generation of Americans who are not just ignorant, but are very morally certain that Israel, America, um, and most importantly, I think actually maybe I should have said that the other way around because it's the great Satan and the little Satan, right? Um, that that generally the West uh, has gotten prosperous and free on the backs of the oppressed. And, and two, um, these are kids who are totally used to not having any consequences. Indeed, they're used to have being rewarded for this kind of behavior, right? And because that has been the operative um, oppressor-oppressed construct, I think as Amber uh, said well last time, um, last week on this podcast, right? That has been the construct applied to everything um, in in uh, their ideological world. Um, and they've been rewarded for this in the past. If you are a member of the oppressed group and you say attack a teacher who is categorized alternatively as Jewish or white, um, interchangeably perhaps as Jewish or white, um, you are the oppressed group. You can do no moral wrong. Everything you do is excusable and indeed laudable. You know, this is the sort of thing that these kids in, in other contexts uh, would be putting on their college applications and to be proud of. And they're surprised, I think, suddenly that there have been some consequences um, in, in this context. But we would be fools to imagine that this is limited to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or anything particular. Um, I, I think this is a this is an American red guard that can be deployed by the left uh, on any number of subjects as we saw in in, in 2020. So uh, with that, I'll kick it out to uh, the group for thoughts. I think it's also important to point out the language that these groups use and particularly the groups of young people on the progressive left. Um, I think building off of the idea of the oppressor versus oppressed class, uh, which is that these individuals will frequently use, I would probably describe it as dehumanizing language um, and violent rhetoric. So for example, when you hear the pro-Palestinian left talk about Israel, they use terms like genocide. They use phrases like um, committing war crimes without evidence. And this is very intentional. And they use this kind of language about the political right in America as well. And the reason they do that is because it justifies their own violence. It creates a paradigm where if they are behaving violently, they are merely doing so in self-defense because they are being actively marginalized or oppressed or genocided or whatever other term that they're using. We see this pretty consistently, for example, among Black Lives Matter protesters, where they claim that the police are out actively hunting Black men. And so for them to riot in the streets in response to George Floyd being killed, that's justified because they're simply protecting themselves from future violence. Um, and that's, I think, a sort of not talked about uh, portion of this ideology, but one that's incredibly important because even when we go back to the roots of Antifa, there was a Dartmouth professor back in, I believe it was 2016 or 2017, so pretty early in the Antifa days, um, where he was talking on CNN, no less, about how um, he believes that Antifa's violence is justified because they are merely responding to systemic violence or violence that is committed on behalf of the government's policies. Um, and so that is very inextricably 
intertwined in this um, sort of leftist Marxist worldview that's been really heavily adopted by the youth. I have a quick point here. Uh, you'll see a lot of these administrators use language like how the actions of the students are intolerable or inexcusable or unacceptable, but their actions, these administrators' actions don't match the words they use. Like they effectively say, okay, and as a result of this being unacceptable, we're going to do a training of some sort about anti-Semitism with no meaningful punishment. I'm sorry like putting falsely imprisoning a teacher in her room and threatening her and demanding her expulsion. That's not behavior that requires a training. That's behavior that requires meaningful consequences for the students involved. Um, and until, unless and until like schools are actually willing to impose consequences, meaningful consequences on this, you know, riot like behavior from their students, you're just going to see more of it. Um, you know, it's like, I don't know how we solve the algorithm problems. Obviously, those are, you know, a problem of themselves. But uh, cer certainly like schools, you know, we should at least be trying to hold these, these administrators to their word. Like if they say that these things are unacceptable, we need to act like it's unacceptable. I think uh, this points to, in many ways, the, the, the sort of intransigent problem, intractable problem, rather, that we discuss often on this show, which is that the schools are the breeding grounds for a self-perpetuating anti-cultural revolution for decades, for generations. You have teachers who attend teaching colleges who themselves are effectively radicalized in the kind of Marxian dialectic oppressed versus oppressor worldview. And here at this school in particular, you also have a student population that's been reported to be over 30% Muslim, and this fits with the idea that we've discussed before, certainly I've discussed before, of the prism of the left-wing worldview that when looked at through the eyes of uh, the Muslim world, and that includes abroad and at home, fit perfectly together in this sort of unholy alliance, uh, which views the West as the oppressor par excellence, I won't repeat the Yasser Arafat quote for the millionth time, but where he's talking about the Palestinian cause, about liberation, it's about social justice, links those causes to other quote-unquote social justice causes, and we're talking in the 1960s then. So this is what you get when you have intersectionality, and it continues to be imbibed in generation after generation, and you're probably going to start seeing it in younger and younger kids. And so how do you deal then with the problem of multi-generational brainwashing in a fundamentally anti-American, anti-Western worldview. And these kids are going to go to colleges and they're going to learn the same thing again. So uh, these are problems that you know are deep-seated. It obviously starts in homes and families, but if kids spend most of their waking hours socialized in and frankly indoctrinated in public schools where this is the view that's propagated, it's a recipe ultimately for pogroms effectively and analogs to what we saw in the BLM riots and the activation of these groups who work together in an inter intersectional alliance essentially to at the point of a gun or at the threat of violence impose their worldview and have more than a heckler's veto ultimately on what US policy should be. So this is a microcosm of a generational and nationwide problem 
that we face, I suspect it's only going to get worse. And the last just anecdotal point I'll make is uh, when I was attending Columbia, and this was back in 2006 to 2010, a time when uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was invited to campus, uh, I witnessed Israel Apartheid Week on campus, which uh, there are Israel Apartheid Weeks on campuses across the country. And all you had to do was look at the flyers put forth by the groups who were backing Israel Apartheid Week. And you saw it was the Muslim Student Association and other uh, Students for Justice in Palestine, and then all the coterie of progressive progressive groups on campus. That sort of personified or illustrated an alliance that's been building for decades and decades. And you see that at a place like Hillcrest High School now. I'll just kick it right back to you, Ben, to talk about the Media Matters potential lawsuit that Elon is bringing. Yep. So on an entirely uh, unrelated matter, um, Elon Musk, or X rather, has brought suit against Media Matters, claiming that Media Matters defamed the social media platform and essentially tried to obliterate its business model through what appears to be based upon X's analysis and attempts to uh, check essentially X's work and Media Matters work, kind of the ultimate algorithmic uh, smear job or hatchet job that Media Matters engaged in. And of course, Media Matters, founded by by David Brock, the Democrat uh, so-called hitman operative and funded by, among others, George Soros, of course, has always been invested in destroying and canceling conservative voices, uh, canceling Fox News itself, and now it's applying it to X. So what did Media Matters do? A according to this lawsuit, Media Matters essentially created a fake account to follow a bunch of fringe so-called uh, white supremacist or fascist uh, Nazi-esque accounts. And then the accounts of all of the largest paid advertisers for X. Then according to X's analysis and according to independent analysis as well, Media Matters then refreshed their feed repeatedly to try and generate pairings in this concocted feed of the dubious or discriminatory or bigoted content appearing right next to the ads of all of X's major advertisers. They then screenshot them essentially and created a report uh, and publicized it saying, look at X. You're, this is a platform where you, Apple or Microsoft or IBM or Oracle, et cetera, your ads, paid ads, appear next to and essentially fund this horrible rhetoric and content. And thus, some of the biggest advertisers on X almost immediately thereafter pulled their paid advertisements from X. As X notes, paid ads from major corporations are uh, comprise the bulk of the revenue streams for the company. So if you get paid advertisers to pull those ads, you kill X's business model and ultimately deplatform the platform itself. So Elon Musk wouldn't take this lying down. He went out and sued Media Matters again for defamation and these attempts to essentially fraudulently destroy the business by smearing it. And I think there are a couple of major points uh, that are worth emphasizing here. One is obviously that Media Matters here is even more ambitious than when it tries to go after a single voice or even a single network. But this is about and part and parcel of a coordinated effort, I think, to pursue Musk and seek to destroy X because it's the sole pl major platform out there that at least is trying to restore a modicum 
of free and open discourse with the caveats that there does still appear to be shadow banning. I think we all probably see odd behavior with our own accounts on the platform and that it's it's no silver bullet and it's not a perfect platform. But nevertheless, on a relative basis, it is better than the others. And not only that, but of course, Musk himself has shown a heterodox worldview and shown that he can't be controlled. And he essentially bought what amounted to, based on the surveillance and censorship regime that's been exposed, effectively an intelligence asset and also an information warfare asset from uh, of our ruling class. And he ripped it out, of, wrenched it out of the ruling class's hands. That's why X has to be destroyed. And that's why it's incumbent upon the likes of an Elon Musk to go out and engage in lawfare against those who would seek to destroy the business, to be aggressive against those who never expect aggression. They expect those who are attacked to be cowed into submission. And this also points to, I think, you know, the broader motto that's been pioneered by less, uh, you know, overtly political vehicles like Media Matters, but the likes of NewsGuard, for example, or the Global Disinformation Index, who purport to be objective graders of, of the veracity of content and the journalistic standards of outlets, but then essentially create blacklists of outlets who don't produce content that comport with the purported standards of their reviewers. And this leads to advertisers then pulling their their ads or ad agencies refusing to run ads on those sites that get bad ratings, that get blacklisted. And overwhelmingly and almost uniformly, this ends up being more conservative news sources. So there's a concerted effort to destroy the business models that platform non-regime essentially content. This is part and parcel of that broader assault effectively on our speech and dissent in this country. And so I'd say kudos to Elon Musk for actively and aggressively going after those who are behind it and trying to expose the kind of sinister efforts. But there needs to be obviously a much broader and more widespread strategy of legislation and law lawfare and public relations aimed at defunding and dismantling the broader censorship industrial complex of which Media Matters now clearly plays a part. So curious what you all make of Musk and X going after Media Matters and then uh, this sort of broader assault by the smear merchants essentially on speech, particularly as we head into 2024. Your point about NewsGuard is, um, and just the general sort of so-called misinformation community of of media uh, smear merchants is well taken. I, I am reminded of Facebook that actually pays fact checkers that are notoriously biased to the left to um, place flags on content that they believe is false, um, i.e. is too conservative for their liking. And that content then gets either removed from people's timelines or otherwise suppressed by Facebook's algorithm. So, and these, and again, these people are paid to do this. So they have a not only a ideological incentive, but also a monetary incentive to try to get rid of content that would um, offend their political sensitivities. And Media Matters, um, as part of this group, I think is probably one of the most evil because they are so. Um, and the way they're organized is so intentional and so insidious. Um, they refer to the individuals who write these hit pieces as researchers, um, as if they are like, um, you know, like college um, students who are 
looking at media content for a thesis um, when really they most of them actually came up through left-wing campus activism were hired by media matters to become watchdogs in a sense of right-wing media personalities and many of them are actually assigned to specific right-wing media personalities they watch and consume everything the person says or writes or or does on the internet and will twist and manipulate and warp to try to destroy that person's life. They've done it to me multiple times um, where they've tried to get me fired from multiple jobs, were successful on one occasion. And um, there's just something about them that is so like almost demonic in the way that they operate. And so I'm so thrilled to see Elon Musk go after them um, because they are probably, I think the worst offender in terms of weaponizing um, their own platform to try to destroy the lives and cancel the speech of other people, um, not to mention um, the fact that the rest of the mainstream media treats them as if they are a legitimate news source as opposed to a left-wing um, opposition research firm. Yeah, um, Media Matters is an appalling and contemptible organization and deserves to be destroyed. And it looks like they've actually found a way potentially to make that happen for them. Um, one of the things that happened in the Dominion lawsuits and that I was warning people about was, you know, a lot of people have been playing fast and loose on the internet with facts for a long time. But when you decide to state falsehoods about a very wealthy company that does measurable financial damage to them, you are actually walking into the world where you're actually going to get hit with one of those defamation lawsuits. And I think that's what Media Matters did here. You know, they've been playing fast and loose with insulting conservative personalities for a long time. But those defamation lawsuits can be challenging. But here they didn't just insult somebody. They, you know, engaged in shenanigans and probably outright fraud in order to hurt a 20 billion, you know, a $40 billion company and hurt its advertising in measurable ways, right? They can, you know, the company can say, these are the companies that pulled their advertising as a result. These are the, this is the money we would have made but for your lies and your fraud. So I think Media Matters is about to pay a very, very serious judgment um, to X. I think they're, you know, the X's case just on the, you know, from, from the facts that are publicly available seems very, very strong. Um, and I hope this leads to the end of Media Matters as an organization because, you know, we certainly, they everybody there deserves to be on the unemployment line. Yeah, in a sense, uh, Teal had a, a harder job going after Gawker because it's it's actually we are, our First Amendment protections are much stronger going after you know conservative media personalities or any anybody who sort of engages in in the rough and tumble of media. But as Google says, um, there are different standards um, for financially hurting companies. Um, and I would point out that even though this is pretty novel, I wouldn't assume that this case is going to go in Elon Musk's favor. Um, what I do think is they've put together a case that is quite likely, particularly in Texas, uh, of hurtling that motion to dis dismiss standard and getting into discovery. And you know what? That could be almost as valuable as a judgment against Media Matters could be what comes out in this kind of case in discovery that allows other actors to see um, fully what, what this organization has been doing for quite some time. So I would say, yes, of course, I'd like to see them bankrupted and destroyed by uh, a judgment um, against them in terms of financial consequences, but I, I will settle for a complete exposure of their their fraudulent business model and the lies that they have used to harm um, not just a lot of, of um, people, but but of course, uh, the financial interests of any company that uh, they, they've deemed uh, has gone against their their own very uh, particular politics. Um, that being said, let's, uh, let's transfer back to Amber um, to talk about what's going on in Ireland with hate speech laws.
Absolutely. So the uh, riots in Dublin um, are are quite fascinating. And I think every American should be watching this story because it not only hits on um, the issue of immigration and the mass migration of refugees, but also um, the issue of free speech and political organizing in response to these types of policies. So um, in Dublin, there was a stabbing where a reportedly Algerian immigrant um, who is now a naturalized Irish citizen has lived there for 20 years, um, stabbed four people, including three children. And this um, sparked the uh, riots that took place in Dublin by um, a number of citizens. There were, I believe, hundreds of arrests um, in these riots. And the police commissioners, the National Police Commissioner's response to the riots was to refer to them as a hooligan faction driven by far-right ideology. And I think it's um, important to point out the context of why these people are rioting. And of course, no one condones riots or violence um, in response to political policies. But this was sort of a powder keg that was ready to ignite um, because Ireland has taken six times more Ukrainian refugees than Britain. Um, approximately 15 to 18% of the Irish population is now foreign born, including about 3% of individuals who have only moved to Ireland in the last year. And there's been concerns in Ireland, like there are throughout much of Europe, especially the UK, of the ability of some of these migrants and refugees to assimilate into the popular culture. And so this stabbing incident was seen as um, evidence, perhaps, that some cultural groups, when migrated en masse to other cultures, um, may create situations of violence and situations of unrest in situations where there's not assimilation happening. Um, it's also um, key here, I think, to understand that there is a lot of sentiment among the Irish populace that their economic fortunes are quite poor right now. Um, this mass migration has led to a massive increase in housing prices. The rents in Ireland, especially in Dublin, have gotten really out of control. There's record homelessness. And yet the migrants who are being brought in by the Irish government are given priority on housing where the Irish citizens are not. So this was really the backdrop for these riots that took place in response to this stabbing, where the individual who committed the stabbing, by the way, the suspect, was stopped by passerbys. He wasn't stopped by police. He was stopped by heroes who took him down and were able to subdue him. Now, in response to the riots and particularly the police commissioner referring to this as a hooligan faction driven by far right ideology, UFC fighter Conor McGregor tweeted, innocent children ruthlessly stabbed by a mentally deranged non-national in Dublin, Ireland today. Our chief of police had this to say, not good enough. There is grave danger among us in Ireland that should never be here in the first place. And there has been zero action done to support the public in any way. He also said that he does not condone the riots or any attacks on first responders in their line of duty. 
um, but he understands the frustration of the protesters. Well, there are now reports that Conor McGregor is actually being uh, investigated for violating Ireland's hate speech laws because they viewed his tweets as an incitement of violence and an incitement of the riots. Um, so even criticizing the current policies and the government's response to the political situation that has helped inspire and spark these riots is deemed unacceptable by the Irish government. And there's also more hate speech laws being proposed in Ireland that would criminalize not just actual speech, but the possession of speech. Um, so for example, if you had a reckless meme on your phone or were otherwise um, in possession of speech that was deemed objectionable by the Irish government or by a judge, you could be criminalized for that under these proposed new laws. Um, so instead of taking seriously the concerns of their citizens, the Irish government has decided to instead crack down on their ability to speak against it and try to control and subjugate the um, the naturalized and Irish-born citizens who have a problem with the way that their country is being run. And I think that um, is perhaps a warning to what could potentially happen here in the United States as we face a very similar migrant crisis right now. Uh, a couple thoughts on this one. Um, every time one of these these cases props up uh, about hate speech laws, I am reminded and grateful uh, for how different American First Amendment law is even from countries that we consider free Western countries like, you know, um, and it's similar in the UK as it is in Ireland. Um, certainly in France, for example, there, there are far fewer speech and religious liberty protections than there are in the United States. Um, so every time I'm, I'm grateful. I mean, it, it's worth pointing out how far this, this law goes. Um, as Amber said, it criminalizes the possession of materials that are, quote, likely to incite violence or hatred. That's a completely ambiguous standard, right? Um, they define that as, quote, hatred against a person or group of persons in the state or elsewhere on account of their protected characteristics, including national origin. Um, and so like, including gender, right? All, all, the, all the usual suspects, but national origin, right? Like, so effectively, potentially, this law could criminalize any discussion of the immigration policy um, in Ireland. Now, I realize that, again, other countries have different standards. I'm not actually feeling particularly uh, sympathetic to the Irish over this, considering that they uh, so strongly support this kind of um, terrorist activity <laughs> in in Israel now. Uh, they have such strong alignment for the Palestinians who are doing the same things as, as the guy who stabbed um, stabbed people in, in Ireland, and they seem to be unable to reconcile uh, the, these two things. Um, that being said, I mean, the, the, the latitude, again, just... Every time one of these stories pops up, I, I find myself so grateful for the particular legal structure of the U.S. Constitution that despite we obviously have people we just discussed in the last segment of Media Matters, right, about Media Matters and elsewhere, um, we have all the same instincts. We have a very powerful left with all the same instincts, and yet as bad as things are, and I know that this is not a cheerful podcast, and every week we are telling you um, how bad things are, um, the First Amendment has proven to be a very valuable barrier. Um, the fact that they've had to go around the First Amendment between this kind of private censorship, public-private regime that, again, we've discussed many times in the Missouri v. Biden case, right, is because they can't directly criminalize uh, this kind of speech the way that Ireland is free to um, it seems happy to the way that, that the UK um, has already done um, the way that France does uh, regularly. So 
um, for that, I'm I'm just feeling particularly grateful uh, this week for for uh, our founding fathers and and for the framing of of the Bill of Rights. Um, in this case, it really does matter. It has put a, a real barrier up to exactly this kind of behavior in the United States. Yeah, um, I'll be I'll be again pretty brief here. Uh, you know, Ireland spent very many years trying to fight for their independence from the United Kingdom in many ways very violently and with the use of terrorism and they finally achieved it only to now be in a situation where they're treating basic political speech as the equivalent of child pornography um like if you're in possession of something like the Daily Wire's new movie that's probably hate speech and sufficient to get you punished under this new law if the government so chooses I I'm heartened to see Conor McGregor stepping into the breach here and uh taking the right side of this conflict and you know, I, I, I governments that do this stop looking like governments that to me and more like regimes that are deserving of regime change. So, you know, we don't usually talk about regime change for European countries, but perhaps we should uh, regime change for Ireland and install Conor McGregor as the rightful king. I think that's a that might be a good thing for, you know, and the next Republican administration to consider, if you know, if they're bored with everything else going on in foreign policy. Yeah, so I guess if we have Miele in Argentina and Geert Wilders uh, in the Dutch world, then maybe McGregor in Ireland. Um, I, you know, I will say um, it, it's just striking to me always that essentially the instinctive response across the West now among the ruling class writ large is we institute a policy that leads to detrimental outcomes for the public. And then the response is, let's silence the public when it expresses its discontent about those policies. And it wants to speak openly and honestly about them and debate them forthrightly, as opposed to the ruling class imposing the policies on the public. Uh, and it just speaks to the weakness and ultimately the fragility of the system broadly in the West, that there has to be this constant and perpetual assault on speech. I agree with Inez we're the best grading on a curve in the West in terms of our devotion to and adherence to free speech. And obviously, you know, doctrinally, it is there baked into law, baked in obviously to the First Amendment. How much of a dead letter that is, is obviously open to question and open to interpretation. The notion of memes, for example, being an issue, as we've discussed before, you can now go to jail over uh, a meme if it I guess is making fun of a protected Democrat figure like Hillary Clinton. I understand that in many of the January 6th cases, investigators look to people's memes on social media, essentially to you know frame them as, I guess, propagating in or trafficking in wrong thing, that there can be some nexus of to what occurred on January 6th. So this is the brave new world that we've entered it's worth looking at where European countries are coming down in terms of their assaults on free speech, probably to anticipate where our authorities will go next when they move on and beyond mis, dis, and malinformation or the imperative to defend, quote unquote, critical infrastructure to whatever the next pretext is for seeking to silence their critics. And, and with that, we're going to move to final thoughts and um, to avoid the usual long silence. Uh, I'll, I'll just kick it off. Um, Obviously, I agree with everything that Ben just said. I, I didn't. I hope that it, I did not come off as as downplaying the, the danger uh, to speech in America, which I think is is dire. Um, I I only think legally uh, it's it's more difficult here, and we should be grateful for that. The the fact that our nefarious actors have to 
perform more dancing steps to try to get around is, is actually an important difference uh, between the constitution and even uh, the, the law of the land in, again, countries that we consider uh, we consider free and, and uh, Western countries that generally support free speech. Um, I, I actually have kind of a, a, a framing question and I'm wondering, maybe some of you uh, ha will jump in on final thoughts. Um, I think it's about time to start assessing uh, what the successes and failures of nine years of populist backlash uh, to a set of policies, chief among them that we we're discussing, right, immigration policy, um, but but including many others set by elites that are clearly out of touch um, by a wide margin with what their populations see around them and vote for. Um, and and I, I would. I would just throw out that I think it's a quite depressing assessment now we have since 2016, if we take Donald Trump's election, right? Um, we have at least nine years of this. We had Trump's election. We had Brexit. We had Maloney in Ireland. Uh, I mean, in, in Italy, we had um, now Geert Wilders in, in, um, in, in uh, so like we've had all of these, these like sort of backlash uh, from the population. Um, and yet even just taking immigration as the one example, uh, as far as I can tell, um, basically there has been no major change conducted on uh, any of the basic immigration policy of, of any one of these countries. Um, in Europe, that might be because of the superstructure of the EU and the incentives that are and, and restrictions that are in place there. In the US, it's because uh, Congress is essentially a sclerotic institution um, and there's only so much uh, an administration, even like Donald Trump, attempted to enforce some of the law. But the law itself uh, in the United States is is set up, um, particularly with a series of court cases, is set up uh, to basically more or less maintain this kind of flow across our, our southern border. So even if you shrink it to just down to immigration, uh, I think there's a quite depressing assessment to be made as to whether these kinds of populist backlashes uh, and, and elections have, have actually uh, substantially changed the trajectory, uh, even on, on this one issue. Um, we are nine years in. It's not just started happening. This It's very clear uh, that there is such a huge gap between um, the population and, and the ruling elites of all of these countries on issues like immigration. But um, so far, uh, no one has really been able to break through and substantially change even something that seems so obviously within the sovereign power of, of a nation state, right, as as deciding um, who is is coming into their borders and who who isn't. So uh, that's kind of a depressing final thought, I admit, but that's my final thought. Yeah, we haven't had really durable change in the United States. Um from the populist revolution. I think, you know, there's a reason I went down to Florida to work for a guy who's currently running for president. I don't work for him anymore, but I came down here for a reason. Uh, that's precisely because he's the guy who we've actually seen real durable changes made in Florida uh, to the way things work here within the authority that he has. Um, it's a reminder that you actually need to be good at governing, that it's not merely enough to have anger and rage because anger and rage dissipates. Like you actually have to have somebody who believes in the policy and has the understanding of the law to implement it. You know, one long-term thesis I had, um, especially after watching what happened during the Trump administration and the many ways in which he was tripped up by the bureaucracy and the courts was we need a president who's a lawyer. Most people don't say that. They think, oh, we need a president who's a businessman. We need a president who can make deals. There are no deals to be made. The, the question is not, how do we get a deal with Congress to get what we want done? The question is, how do we get somebody who understands how to use the laws already on the books to enact the change that we need implemented? And 
Um, you know, that's one of the many cases that I think there is for Governor DeSantis as president. And I still I still believe it. And I think, um, you know, just as a side note, like, don't count that guy out. And and he really is the guy that could implement the agenda we want to see implemented here in the States. So I'll, I'll be brief and on the the kind of limits of or what we should make of the kind of populist revolt, ongoing populist revolt throughout the Western world. It's obviously a mixed bag on a state by state, nation by nation basis, how effective the backlash has been at both electing leaders with a shared agenda and then their success in actually effectuating and implementing it. I think measured by, for example, in the US, how skeptical people are of authorities and institutions broadly in this country, you'd say that's probably a win to some extent in terms of how distrustful on the merits people are of ruling elites that have ultimately, I think we'd all agree, lied to us, undermined our national interest, and ultimately worked at cross purposes to uh, the common good of our society. Obviously, the follow through and then the execution is uh, more than open debate. And I think in part, what that speaks to is just the size, influence and power of the forces that you're up against almost definitionally in a populist movement, even beyond, of course, the splintering that you have in any kind of political movement, the ambitions of those who seek to lead it and how they may undermine the movement itself in jockeying for power. But obviously, you're up against every major influential and powerful institution because the agenda that's been imposed is one that they view as in their self-interest. So effectuating revolutionary change takes time, effort. It's a difficult thing. Uh, on the other hand, I don't think that there's any alternative to it long term. So even if it's a losing proposition to be in nine years into this project to challenge institutions captured by those uh, who have a fundamentally different and in some cases antithetical worldview to our own, there's no alternative but to keep plugging away at it and trying. And just as it took generations for this kind of Gramscian long march to triumph, it'll probably take generations to try and reverse the damage done and replace the institutions with something better. So it's still a work in progress, obviously. It's an uphill battle, but I don't think there's any alternative but to engage in it. I agree with Ben. I think that's a, a really great perspective is to keep plugging away as much as, you know, electing Donald Trump was a real kick in the butt for um, a large swath of our institutions. And as good as it felt for, I think, the underrepresented people in America, um, there's only so much you can do in the American political system with merely an executive who is championing certain policies. And specifically on the immigration question, I mean, I think Trump was fantastic on the issue for the most part. He was able to implement a lot of change using executive powers from the Remain in Mexico policy to negotiating a deal with Mexico such that they would use their own National Guard to help patrol the southern border. He had the safe third country rule. He had um, the rule where he would prosecute every illegal crosser and keep them in custody as opposed to catch and release. So there were a lot of great changes that were made. Unfortunately, because of our political system, of course, those were immediately undone by the new administration, by President Joe Biden. And so Congress is a huge roadblock, as Inez said. 
Um, but I am, I guess, hopeful and optimistic that we have been also seeing more candidates crop up that are of a populist persuasion, whether it's people like J.D. Vance being elected to the Senate, Josh Hawley from Missouri. We have Blake Masters running again for Congress in Arizona. Um, we continue to see more and more of these type of people who are actually willing to listen to popular sentiment running for office, and it's going to take a long time, and it might fail ultimately, but um, as Ben said, I think that's that's the only option. On that note, relatively hopeful one for us. Um, on behalf of Will, Ben, and Amber, thanks for tuning in. I'm Inez Stepman, and we'll see you at the next Snack Con Squad.